How you doing, everyone? This is Glenn Geyer from the Neepscast, your favorite evolutionary psychology-themed podcast, focusing on the nature of human behavior from an evolutionary perspective and all that goes along with it. I am here today with my good friend, Catherine Salmon, who is a member of the board for, uh, for Neeps and is editor of our journal, Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences. Catherine, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Glenn. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great as well. Very happy to have you on board. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I think the last time you and I worked together in a podcast capacity <laughs> was kind of interesting, right? Uh, it certainly was. <laughs> yes. I give you a lot more credit uh, than I would give myself for being calm when people say crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just to, to put a face to that for uh, the folks out there, um, Catherine and I were selected. I'm not quite sure how, but we were selected <laughs> by um, a production in Canada called Science for the People, which is kind of like an NPR sort of science mm -hmm. program, really well produced, and, and uh, it's a really good show. And it was a conversation about evolutionary psychology, and it was definitely framed in a debate kind of style. So Catherine and I were the pro-evolutionary psychology people, and then there was a, a couple of people who were against, and uh, it was a little bit fiery. It, it, it certainly was, yes. It's a bit entertaining. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, but I do encourage people to listen to that and to, uh, to explore all sides of things. So, so yeah, so that was the last time. So, um, so let's get started. We uh, Typically, I will ask people um, to start by talking about evolutionary psychology in a general sense. So what is evolutionary psychology to you and why is it important? Sure. Um, from my perspective, I mean, evolutionary psychology is um, the way psychology should be, um, but it, it's really a field where the goal is to um, discover and describe, you know, the psychological adaptations uh, that constitute the human mind or brain to look at what actually um, enables our our actual behavior. So really it's taking an adaptationist approach mm -hmm. to looking at psychology. So looking at um, our psychological mechanisms as the products of natural and, and of sexual selection. Yeah, excellent. And, and pretty much seeing behavior and psychological processes as sort of fitting within that framework. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, you know, for me, it was a very um, sort of know, natural or organic kind of um, way to look at humans. I trained as, a, as an undergraduate, as a biologist, and I studied uh, things like parental investment and assortative mating in birds. Hmm. And so when there was an opportunity to look at humans, it just seemed very natural to look at humans from the same perspective and basically study some of the same things in humans that we study in other species. Yeah, you know, I, I had kind of a similar experience in terms of how I became interested in the field. And that as an undergrad, I took a course in animal behavior, and it was simply titled animal behavior. I wasn't expecting mm -hmm. to be exposed to evolution. I didn't realize how focused it was going to be on behavioral adaptations. Um, but the entire class was behaviors across any and all kinds of animals understood from an evolutionary framework. And I never thought about um, being human the same after that. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that that's it. I had not taken any psychology before I took 
um, an animal behavior class from a psychology department. And then I took what was then called sociobiology mm-hmm. um, that Barton Daly taught at McMaster University. And I actually took it in my senior year as an undergraduate. Wow. And then decided sort of at the end of that semester that that, that was the field for me. That is so great. <laughs> so so you were at McMaster with, with Daly and Wilson, um, yeah. two of the, you know, primary figures and leaders in, in the field. What was it like to work with them? Um, it, I mean, it was great. I mean, I'm not, I, I mean, my perspective obviously is from somebody who's, who, who's worked with a few people since then, but mm-hmm. that was sort of my formative experience. Um, for me, it was, it was, it was a really good sort of mentoring experience. Their lab was, um, interesting in the sense that there was a little bit of a familial aspect to it, right? You have, you know, a couple that are running a lab right. together, but they were really good at sort of pressuring or, or uh, sort of pushing their students to do really independent work from their work. So I think one of the real benefits for me of, of being in that lab was I became a very independent researcher in some ways very early on, although they were always there to mm-hmm. Uh, talk things through and discuss things. And and we had a really um, sort of cohesive lab group at that point. But in many ways, they sort of treated us kind of like children that you need, you need to give them the right kind of instruction, but you need to encourage them to be independent. Mm. Well, it, it certainly seems to have worked out well for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, yeah, I think it worked well, for me, I really appreciate the really solid grounding I got. It was also really good for me from that perspective because Martin also did work on animals as well. He did research on kangaroo rats. Hmm. Um, and so it was a natural transition for me from a, sort of coming from a biology department to come into the psychology department and then just start studying um, things like parental investment and sibling conflict in humans instead of studying it in in birds and other species. So that part for me was really good. And the other benefit, I mean, I think there was a huge benefit for all of the students from Martin and Margot's lab was that we got so much exposure to other uh, people in the field um, because, you know, they'd invite them to come give talks. We had some informal get togethers with um, faculty and students at the University of Michigan in some of those early years as well. And so we got a really broad sort of perspective of things. Yeah, that that's great. I, I think um, there's sort of unstated and visible aspects to the mentoring process. And Obviously, a, a, you know, an academic mentor is someone who oversees your research and helps guide your research, but a, a mentor that also builds bridges and connections for you to, you know, really un- understand, know, and work with um, other scholars in the field at other institutions, I think is an invaluable part of the process. Yeah, exactly. I would never have, um, I probably would never have, like, for example, worked with Don Simons mm-hmm. if Martin hadn't been somewhat horrified at some of the research ideas and said, you really need to talk to someone who does more work on sexuality if you're going to do this kind of thing mm-hmm. and encourage me to go talk to, to Don about that. So I think there um, really, that's one of, as you said, it's one of these sort of unseen aspects of mentoring, but it is a really important part. Yeah. And it played out very well for you. I know you ended up publishing a book with Don Simons, a high profile book several years ago um, yeah. on yeah. human sexuality. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, and I still do work in that sort of, um, you know, that touches on that kind of field and, and that deals with that aspect of sexuality too. So that's been a sort of consistent aspect of my academic life. Yeah, that's, that's great. So 
Um, that's a nice segue toward, uh, I guess, the research component of our conversation. So you're a very prolific researcher. I feel like you have been for a long time. Um, I'm always impressed with the breadth of the research that you do as well as the quality. Uh, so with, with that said, why don't you um, kind of describe either some of your cutting edge newer research or, you know, something that's, that's excites you. Oh, um, sure. Okay. Um, so I, I guess I, uh, the sort of bread thing is an example of the fact that I actually do better when I have lots of different types of projects to work on mm -hmm. at the same time, because I also get bored very easily. <laughs> um, and so I really have about four or five different major areas of research that sort of sometimes intersect. I did most of my early work on things like birth order and family dynamics and a little bit about sibling conflict. Um, I still do do a little bit of work on that. My most recent stuff in that area has actually been on sibling conflict as opposed to birth mm. order effects specifically. Um, and it's kind of interesting because the study that was published a few years ago, I did it with uh, Jessica Heeman, who's an evolutionary developmental psychologist that's here at the University of Redlands uh, with me. And um, we looked at sort of testing ideas about the relationship between uh, relatedness and conflict between siblings and you know the sort of Hamiltonian perspective on that was that you know you see the highest levels of conflict between unrelated siblings or partially related siblings and more solidarity with full siblings mm -hmm. um, and we wondered whether people had really tested this very much mm -hmm. um, and found out that there were not at least very many tests of this in humans there's lots of work in other species on it um, and in the study that we conducted, um, we actually did not find that. We found that, that there was actually less conflict amongst the half-siblings living mm. in the family than, than full-siblings, um, and also than the unrelated ones. And I guess in some ways what was validating to me, I suppose, um, is that some other researchers since have also replicated those results. So it, it I think, you know, is interesting in the idea that it lets us sort of think about what factors other than just relatedness, mm -hmm. right, could be playing into how much conflict and cooperation there are between siblings. Um, so that certainly is one area yeah. that I've been interested in lately. Yeah, that, it's super interesting. And, you know, as, as someone whose mind always thinks from an evolutionary perspective, I, I kind of hear that and I say, okay, I totally see why you would have taken what you call the Hamiltonian prediction kind of to start with. Um, and for people that aren't super familiar with, with the field, it's basically the idea, um, like you'd said, that there's an expectation that the more closely you related you are to someone genetically, the more um, sort of genetic motivation there is to be altruistic toward that other individual because you're helping share genes that you have with that individual. Um, so if you're finding that people are actually more helpful to half siblings than to full siblings that must suggest that there's some other some other benefits in other words what what are you proposing then is the benefit well, to yeah. to that so it wasn't quite that so it, so when okay. we when we did the study we were actually looking mostly at measures of conflict mm. so the study that we're currently working on is trying to address part of what you're talking about which is whether cooperation and conflict are actually working the same way okay because we found that in terms of conflict it doesn't really seem to follow that kind of hamiltonian prediction mm -hmm. other people have found that in terms of 
cooperation, it looks like it does. So we're actually interested in trying to measure both in the same study and see if we're actually getting effects that are driven by different things. Oh, that's super because interesting. That's our sort of suspicion from looking at other people's work as well. Great. Um, there's also, um, you might be familiar with research by, I think he's at University of Michigan, a guy named Bernstein, who showed that um, these kind of patterns differ when you're looking at helping or cooperation if there's a, a, a small amount at stake versus yeah. a high stake situation. So how does that, how do you think that would play out? Right. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, if you think back to like that kind of a study, right, where you're talking about, um, you know, situations where, for example, you might have to risk your life to help somebody else, right. um, then you would expect that those biological ties would be more salient and more important. And I mean, I think another really good example of how much we recognize that at some instinctual level is if you look at when we give awards for things like bravery, right? When somebody jumps mm -hmm. into a freezing lake to rescue someone, mm -hmm. we don't give those awards when they're jumping in to rescue their kids or their oh siblings. That we is, give them when yeah. it's strangers, right? Because that's what's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so I, I would think that in those kinds of situations, um, it might, but we, what we were kind of interested in is, is to a certain extent is the sort of da daily kinds of things that affect people's relationships sort of over the long haul and do those levels of conflict and cooperation sort of in the long run have a, you know, a more lasting effect on relationships. And that's partially, um, you know, a little bit of, of Jessica's developmental um, perspective sort of uh, pushing some of our interests in that direction. But I think that, yes, that when you look at what the costs of engaging in the behavior are, you would be more likely to see those higher risk behaviors being done for family or for people who've had really long-term family-like relationships, right? Mm -hmm. the sort of kinship type relationships. Sure. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, definitely with a species like ours where reciprocal altruism is such a mm -hmm. salient dominant kind of thing that we definitely have relation, special relationships um, with people based on longstanding interactions that have been mutually beneficial. Yeah. So, even if you think about like bands of brothers, right, and, and you know, during warfare, right, there are people mm -hmm. who will do anything, right, really for, you know, their comrades in arms. And I think that's sort of in some sense playing off that same aspect of the importance of those kinds of social relationships. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm looking forward to, to seeing the results of your newest work on that. Yeah, so am I. Hopefully it'll <laughs> turn out uh, to be interesting and not just more puzzling. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, with research, we can always hope. That's one thing I found. Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of research, you uh, one of the great venues for research in, in evolutionary psychology these days is the journal um, Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences, which is the official journal of NEEPS and which is published by the American Psychological Association. And you've been doing um, for several years now a great job as the editor-in-chief. Well, um, thank you. Yeah, so, uh, so if you could maybe speak a little bit about your, your work on EBS. Sure, sure. So I um, originally started out a number of years ago at EBS as an associate editor. And then when uh, Dan O'Brien stepped down, there was a search for a new editor in chief. Um, and uh, I ended up getting that position. And, and my real, I guess, in some sense, my sort of particular interest in, in the journal is in making it um, a, a, a place for interesting, cutting edge, uh, maybe not boring, um, but innovative 
research and especially interdisciplinary research in the evolutionary behavioral sciences. Um, part of this is, was driven by a feeling that, that some journals in the field were too narrowly focused and that there wasn't really a place for um, some aspects of research that were a little bit non-traditional. Um, some of those areas, like Darwinian literature, for example, have actually managed uh, to get a, another place where they can actually sort of find themselves flourishing uh, in Joe Carroll's new journal. But I think that there are many sort of sub areas of our field that can get ignored in some of the larger journals. And so I wanted to make EBS a place for um, research that in some ways uh, may either take a novel approach, either mm -hmm. in terms of perspective or methodology. So it's not just the same old, same old. Exactly, because you know the same old, same old to a certain extent is useful because you need to replicate things, and you need to sometimes, you know, sometimes those those are good ways of studying things. But I also think that it's useful when people start to actually sort of get out of the box and sort of challenge some of the assumptions that people may have in a field because we sometimes don't challenge those assumptions. And sometimes those assumptions may be well-based in reality and sometimes not. Mm -hmm. um, so to, to follow up on that, I see that there's a new article that's been published pretty recently by um, two longstanding Neepsters and Becky Birch and Laura Johnson. And the mm -hmm. title is, of this article is Captain Dorito and the Bombshell, Supernormal Stimuli in Comics and Film. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great title for an article. It certainly is a sort of uh, a title that makes an article stand out. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, an article like that is interesting on a number of levels. It brings together the study of popular culture and evolutionary psychology. And in many ways, um, I think popular culture has not benefited enough from people taking an evolutionary or an adaptationist perspective in studying it in general. I've made the argument elsewhere and so have other people in our field that we that we need to um, view pop culture in the same way that archaeologists view fossils. It, mm -hmm. it tells us something about our adaptations and about the pressures that we face. And so I think in many ways Becky and Laura's article is a really good example of that and it's also a very topical example. It deals with um, you know uh, body image and attractiveness and the way that this gets manifested in a genre like comic books that's not actually constrained by reality, mm -hmm. right? When we talk about supernormal stimuli, um, you know, a common kind of um, example that people might have used if they're teaching about it is to use the example of somebody like Jessica Rabbit, right? So the idea of a super curvaceous female figure um, that that's sort of emphasizing all of these different sort of signals of fertility. Uh, and comic books are a really good place for that to happen because, again, they're not really constrained by um, the reality of people's own bodies. Although uh, Becky and Laura point out that um, by using the, the Captain Dorito example, that, that that actually is based on an actual human who has a rather extraordinary um, sort of body shape as well. <laughs> And, and, and who would that be and how does that relate to modern, very modern pop culture? Sure. So Captain Dorito was um, the uh, meme that went around after the sort of advent of the Avengers and the Captain America movie series that mapped uh, the shape of a Dorito chip onto 
uh, Chris Evans, who plays Captain America, um, his body, pointing out that his shoulders are rather uh, ex extremely wide in comparison to his his teeny tiny waisted hips. Hmm. Um, and so that if you just put the Dorito over him, you can see that it, it fits him in a rather um, elegant kind of way. But it's sort of emphasizing that aspect as well of male attractiveness, the powerful male that has really broad shoulders, but is not just hugely bulky. It's what we used to often refer to as the swimmer's build hmm. um, in terms of male attractiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, obviously that's a very, uh, super interesting article. And I, I think last year at NEEPS, um, at the 2008 conference in here in New Paltz, we were fortunate to have Becky and Laura both give talks related to this research. And I got to say, I was just thrilled when I saw that it was, uh, actually had been, been published almost exactly a year after the conference. So I think that's just great. Yeah, the timing ended up being very, very surreptitious that way. But it was, um, yeah, I mean, it was an amazing talk and it, it made it really clear. Um, and I think that the article does the same thing. It, it really highlights the fact that there are many different ways that we can study, um, we can study our psychology, right? Mm -hmm. And the psychological design of these different kinds of mechanisms that we have. And, you know, we, we all get into the habit of doing surveys because they're in many ways easy and right. we have college students who are willing to fill them out. Um, but there are lots of other kinds of artifacts that we can use as well to look at our psychological design. And so I think it's a great example of how we can do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, pretty much what they did was they just went through comic books. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, just well, go on, go yeah, on. The they basically, yeah, they basically built this big database of all of this information from either the comic books themselves, from these sort of encyclopedias of the comic book characters that that either provide that, that provide pictures or provide information about about their um, physical dimensions. And we're able to accumulate this really incredible database of information about the bodies of these comic book heroes. And I think for some people, I mean, you would look at that and you would say, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay, if you think about the comic books that you read when you were younger or that you might continue to read, but they really were able to quantify that in a way mm -hmm. that makes it um, uh, very difficult to argue anything other than their perspective on it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, and I like what you, you're saying about how the evolutionary psych approach really gets researchers to think beyond just surveys. I mean, like you're saying, we all do surveys. Um, you know, there's, that's definitely a basic part of um, empirical research in most areas of psychology. But an evolutionary psychologist, I, I kind of feel like this approach gets you to think about things in a broader kind of way. You know, when we're looking at a comic book, we suddenly start seeing things like, like ratios of different parts to bodies, and we start thinking about fitness indicators and Right. You know, there's so it's kind of like the evolutionary psych approach is um, it's so ubiquitous. It really allows you to start thinking about any like you were saying, like behavioral artifacts, you know, human behavior has a footprint in, in so right. much of our, our culture and, and so many of the um, kinds of media that we have that it's uh, it's such a powerful and useful way to understand so much about the human experience. I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, it really is. And, and the reality is, is that, you know, if you're trying to answer particular kinds of questions, study a particular kind of phenomenon, ideally, you, you would use multiple, you know, different types of methodology yeah. to do that, whether you do it yourself, or whether a group of people do it. 
And if you all get the same answer, whether you're doing physiological studies or surveys or experiments or looking at these kinds of artifacts, if you all get the same answer, you probably got it right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if exactly. you get different answers, you need to go back to the drawing board and think a little bit more, right? Yep. Because it's telling you that maybe you don't understand the full picture. And so I think it's really useful from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember in graduate school being taught the, the term triangulation of yeah. measurement. And that's, you know, that was kind of the idea of like, try to measure whatever ph phenomenon you're looking at in, in yeah. at least three different ways. But I kind of hear what you're saying is three might even be not enough, you know? <laughs> yeah, you could have, you could have more. I mean, and this is yeah. one of the arguments actually you mentioned the book that Don and I had worked on years ago. It was one of the points that we made in Warrior Lovers is that you can learn a lot from all of these different methodologies, but the unobtrusive measures are ones that you really need to consider too. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the work that, that I've done looking at things like pornography and stuff like that over the years have really come out of that, that idea that, okay, you can look for universals in these things, but you can also look at really weird or unusual seeming or quirky things like, like the studies of Slash and see okay, well, what's common between this and other forms? And then what's different about this that then tells us something about individual differences? Because mm -hmm. sometimes in evolutionary psychology, we get so caught up with studying universals, we forget about the individual differences. Right. But you really can assess those too through these kinds of methodologies. Absolutely. Um, so, so speaking of, to change gears a little bit, um, but it's related to this idea of going beyond just survey research, you gave... A, a really um, high caliber uh, keynote address at NEEPS in 2017. I don't think anyone was bored for one second. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, um, it was on the topic of using pornographic stimuli and, and data regarding porn to help answer um, important questions about human mating and relationships from an evolutionary perspective. So mm -hmm. what if you could maybe sort of um, nutshell that a little bit for the audience. Right. So that was the, the pornotopia talk. So, mm -hmm. I mean, really, I think, again, this is coming back to the issue about taking advantage of modern technology and modern types of artifacts to really test different kinds of theories and take different kinds of approaches to looking at things that are as basic as, as human sexual psychology. And, you know, we've always been concerned in sex research that um, people might not always be honest, right? Like if you happen to be particularly turned on by something that is not considered um, socially acceptable, then, um, you know, you may not be very honest about that, even if it's an anonymous survey, because you still may be worried about, okay, well, what does, you know, sure. what's really going on with this? And is it truly anonymous? One of the things about people's internet consumption is that it is often tracked, not necessarily always because they're paying attention to it being tracked, right. um, but because you know commercial websites are keeping track of information for their own marketing purposes. Um, and so you have you know now big websites like Pornhub releasing data on its consumers and what they're up to, um, but it can give you a, a um, you know, sort of another way of indexing people's interests in different kinds of aspects of sexuality. And maybe again, ways of testing different kinds of evolutionary hypotheses. And it may be that people who say, for example, have this particular life history strategy or this particular SOI, or, you know, that, that, that are, you know, particularly interested, for example, in infidelity or something like this, that their porn preferences reflect that. And there may be ways of combining 
um, survey work with the kinds of artifactual um, evidence that we get from things like online pornography in ways that can give us better insight into two different things. One is it can give us better insight into our own sexual psychology, but it can also give us some insight um, into what people are up to when they are consuming products like pornography and erotica. Because of course, many people also get very concerned about whether people are, are consuming pornography or not. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the recent research that's been coming out has suggested that it's not problematic in the sense that the consuming pornography does not cause bad behavior on people's parts. But um, it may give us insight into what particular kinds of behavior they think is exciting, at least to imagine. Of course, there are many things that might be exciting to imagine that we might not actually ever want to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. And uh, I, I feel like, again, just what a great example of thinking outside the box when it comes to data. Mm. I mean, it's a great, yeah, I mean, it's a great source of sort of big data, right? Like, I mean, when we think about, you know, how do we use big data, sometimes people still focus on, well, big data is big surveys, right, that are done by, by companies or whatever. Mm -hmm. But there's also big data that can be collected by doing things like looking at, at internet pornography. But also, again, going back to something like Becca and, and uh, Becky and, and Laura's study, um, the Captain Dorito one, they created their own big data. Right. They, right. they archived it themselves, but it gives you that information. And it's more valuable to have it for that large group than to just have it for one. I mean, it would be perfectly fine to just put Captain Dorito up there and say, this, this is what, what women find uh, appealing. Um, but in fact, if you have the same picture for a really wide range of characters, in fact, mm -hmm. the majority of characters, then it's telling an even more powerful message. Yeah, ab absolutely. So great. it's great to just kind of think about and explore different, you know, cutting edge ways to, to think about human uh, behavioral data collection. Yes. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, uh, that you and I have very recently become uh, deeply involved in is the Heterodox Psychology Workshop, um, mm -hmm. which uh, was started by uh, Richard Redding at Chapman University um, as a as a, almost as a one-off conference, I felt like was the idea at least. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was held on the campus at Chapman last August, and the idea was to, to sort of mentor um, junior faculty and aspiring scholars and students um, on what it's like to sort of study questions and topics and things in psychology that aren't exactly mainstream and how do we do that? Um, so I feel like you and I were really fortunate to sort of be on the ground floor of that. And mm -hmm. as it turns out, you and I are now playing a major role in organizing the next conference, which will take place in January. Right, right. Um, so maybe um, tell the audience a little bit about your experience with the, uh, with the workshop. Uh, sure, so um, I guess there's sort of, there's two things. One, I would maybe preface a little bit about, like in terms of what, I mean, I think the overarching goal is in terms, so part of it is about mentoring certainly students and young scholars, but in particular, sort of mentoring them in terms of the promotion of things like open inquiry and viewpoint diversity and mm -hmm. constructive disagreement mm -hmm. um, in these areas, as you say, that can be controversial in terms of, of the research topics. So um, at that, that first workshop, um, you and I were both part of 
sessions that had to do with evolutionary psychology itself, mm -hmm. right? Which for some people it has been seen as controversial in taking that kind of an approach, but also in terms of sex research in general. And I think my comment at the time would be that it, from a sort of, I don't know, political or sort of social views uh, perspective, sex researchers are caught between, you know, a rock and a hard place mm -hmm. because uh, in many cases, the message that you give people in terms of your research is often not well viewed by people on the left, but it also the idea that you even do the research is often not viewed particularly well by people on the right. And so I think that, the, you know, the overarching sort of aspect of, in some ways of the conference is telling people that, yes, you can do these research, you can assess these research questions. There's a community out of, peop of people out there that are doing it. You can do more to encourage and support each other in it. Um, and then maybe also some suggestions on how to do it in a way that you don't get yourself in trouble. Sure. Um, and we certainly had people speak at the conference who have taken a lot of grief in the past mm -hmm. for the work they've done. I think I've been very fortunate and I suspect that you have too and that people mm -hmm. um, perhaps, I, and I suspect some of it in my case is partially because I'm a female talking about the issues in the first place get less pushback. But um, some people like Mike Bailey, who spoke at the conference, have had tremendous amounts of pushback over the research that they've done. Mm -hmm. That was not because of the quality of the research, right. or the, but just that people did not like the ideological implication of the results. Right, right. And I think what you just said captures kind of the problem. It's kind of when there's a conflict between science and politics, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, you could have an ideological or a political agenda. This is what I want to be true. Right. And then there's science and science kind of is like, this is what's true. And those things don't always line up. No, <laughs> they don't. <laughs> um, you know, and, and again, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it, some of this comes back to this whole issue about the naturalistic and the moralistic fallacy. And do we teach people to really think about these things or not. I mean, again, mm -hmm. I, you know, when my students get upset about things like this and we're talking about studies and, and they're saying, but you're saying that this, that this is natural. So that that means it's a good thing. And it's like, natural is not necessarily a good thing. Mm -hmm. Nature is good and bad. I mean, you know, disease is natural. Doesn't right. mean that, that you think it's a good thing if it happens to be affecting you. Right. Um, but I think that people will make those kinds of arguments and try and suppress certain kinds of research on the basis of that. And I think, um, you know, from my perspective, I think evolutionary psychology is certainly vulnerable to that and has been yeah. in the past, but I think that sex research is as well as, as well as a number of other areas. Yeah, I think so. Um, and the, that first conference definitely was, um, I'd say disproportionately represented by evolutionary psychologists. Um, we had two of the main, uh, invited guests were Lita Cosmetist and John Tooby, you know, heroes and sort of icons in our field. And uh, I've, I thought it was a thrill to be able to hear them in so many contexts talking about their experiences and just how brave they were, you know, kind of pushing the idea of evolutionary psychology decades ago when, uh, you know, it was, it was clearly not, a, not an idea that anyone else really wanted to even hear. Right. I mean, I think it's always really interesting to hear about you know, the early days uh -huh. um, of any field, right? And what the sort of challenges are in terms of how it develops. But I agree that I think, you know, in the long run, an organization like this and conferences like this are gonna be really helpful to raise 
individual people's awareness of how much of a problem this can be and maybe of different ways to address it that they can engage in, but also ones that they can try and pressure administrators at yeah. universities to engage in. Because people might think, well, that, that, that just affects you if you do weird kinds of research or something like that. But that kind of thinking influences hiring decisions Absolutely. at universities. It influences tenure decisions at universities. And so you want junior faculty and graduate students to be aware of these things. Um, and you want more senior faculty be, faculty to be aware of ways that they can try and improve right. what's happening at universities in terms of this. And I think it can also have an impact in terms of public awareness of these kinds of issues as well. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and in fact, a couple of years ago, I was asked to write something for Times Higher Education about how ideological um, perspective can influence hiring decisions. And so I titled it, um, you wouldn't hire a behaviorist, at least admit it. <clears throat> and now I used behaviorist because right. behaviorism's kind of fallen out of favor. And sure. I kind of felt like, you know, using evolutionary psychologists would be too obvious and explicit of kind of where I was going with this. Um, but, you know, when you look at hiring in academia, I don't think anyone would deny, well, I'm not sure. Maybe that's naive, but right. I suspect some people would deny it, right? And and I can yeah. tell you, I'm my department is is getting ready to start a search for yeah. a position this this coming fall, mm -hmm. and I, I can tell you that I think it is a I think it is a problem, right? That if yeah. what you really want is to just hire the best candidate for of a course. job, yep, there can be a challenge to doing that nowadays. Yes, yes. And I think it's partly because certain perspectives, an example um, to me always is like, imagine a sociology department gets an applicant, and sociology is famously sort of against evolutionary approaches, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. So imagine a sociology department gets an application from someone who has evolution all over his or her vita, and, you know, has great publications and, and great teaching record and you know, a PhD from a top institution, you can easily imagine that that application, you know, not not advancing for this reason or that reason. Right. I mean, a certain amount of it is is also the kind of thing that then an evolutionary perspective can help you understand. Part of it's just simple tribalism, right? People are just hiring more of themselves into a department, but that's not the way to create a nice, diverse enriching environment for your students right right exactly <laughs> get the same thing from everybody that's not going to help them in terms of their own development of critical thinking and how to discuss these ideas with other people they just have the one perspective and that's all they know right right so yeah intellectual diversity is um i think a really important engine that advances our understanding of the world mm -hmm. so yeah, so I'm, I'm, I really enjoy working with you uh, behind the scenes on the conference, and I'm really looking forward to, um, to that conference in January. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm hoping that that's going to turn out to be a really, uh, really good conference in the, in the new year. Yeah, so, uh, so listeners should take a look. We're going to start advertising that probably about in the next month or so, and I, we mm -hmm. call it the Heterodox Psychology Workshop, so people should look for that. Um, and I guess I'll just give another plug, uh, more pressing, and June... <laughs> Second, so less than a month, my goodness, in Boston, we will have the 13th annual meeting of the Northeastern Evolutionary Psychology Society. Yep. Scary 13. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what could go wrong? 
Yeah, nothing, nothing could ever go wrong. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be great. We have great conference hosts and um, Jimmy Moran and Stacey Macanova and great, uh, our program chair is Marissa Harrison from PSU, uh, Penn State, Harrisburg. And so we got our, um, we got our, our board is behind it. So I feel like we're in really good shape. And you have great plenary, great great keynote speakers. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we've got our friend Becky Birch yep. is going to be speaking. Yep. And Bobby Lowe. And Bobby Lowe, who's former president of the Human Behavior and Evolution Society and has been doing yep. research on human sexuality and non-human mm-hmm. primate sexuality as well for a very long time. Right. Yep. So, yeah. So excellent speakers. Yeah. So we're in really, we're in very good shape. Yep. Um, so yeah, so hopefully people will, uh, will come out to Boston and, and show up for that. And, uh, Catherine, I look forward to seeing you there. Same from me. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys too. Yeah. So, uh, so with that said, um, we end our podcast with haikus that are evolution themed. <laughs> and I understand we have a treat because you, uh, let me know before that we've got more than one haiku coming. I have two for you. So I have one that I consider sort of my, I don't know, I would consider it a more standard one um, in the sense that it is just focused on some concepts from uh, life history. And then uh, the other one is a very special one since we were talking about uh, Becky and Laura's paper. Mm-hmm. The first one is, um, my dad was absent. I'm having casual sex fast life history. Oh my God. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> okay. So we've got that one. And then yeah. the one in honor of the Captain Dorito paper is Captain Dorito, supernormal stimuli, America's ass. Oh my God. There you go. Well, I guess we're just going to have, have to end on that word right there. <laughs> Captain, <laughs> thank you so much for being part of this. And I look forward to seeing you in Boston. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. You got it. Take care. <laughs>